This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. One of their very favorite speakers, so we're glad to it's an honor. Okay, thank you so much for the very warm introduction. So, uh, whenever a speaker comes to school and they hear that they're the students and teachers' favorite speaker, that's always uh, very exciting. And then somebody came over to me, Rabbi Gladstein, I'm so excited that you're here, I'm pumped. So that really got me energized to share with you a few words about uh, the Yom of Purim, Haba Aleinu Lataiva. I want to share with you an original insight into the Megillah, and I believe that this insight will give us a Pesach, will give us an opening into understanding not only the events of the Purim story, because I believe that after uncovering this nugget, this is literally the central theme of the Purim story, even though at first glance you may not notice it. This will be a central theme in Jewish history, in world history, and I think an important vantage point to understand current events and the events that are unfolding before our eyes on a daily basis. So Megillus Esther concludes in the final chapter, in the 10th chapter of Megillus Esther, Perak Yud. I'll teach you a little English. So you have the last Pasuk and the second to last Pasuk. What do you call the second to last? The penultimate and the third to last is called what? The anti-penultimate so the anti-penultimate Pasuk in Megillah Sester, the third to last Pasuk, it says, <laughs> taxed the people. So that is the summit, the crescendo, the grand finale of the Purim story is not only were the Jewish people saved, not only did we turn around and attack our enemies, but Achashverosh taxed the people. I mean, is that really very exciting? Is that really of note? Why is that even recorded in Megillah's Esther? You know, the next Pasuk in the Megillah is a very important and fundamental Pasuk in the Megillah. The Pasuk says, You want to know the historical context of the Purim story? You want to know about the palace intrigue? You want to know about the politics of the times? You got the wrong book! It's not going to be found in Megillah Sester. This book is not a history book. This book is not about Persian politics, palace intrigue. This book, it was written for one reason and one reason only. Persume Nisa, to magnify the miracle of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Why then does Megillah Esther conclude that Achashverosh taxed the people? Is that really central information for the Purim story? So I'm going to share with you now one Pasuk in the Megillah, three words of the Gemara, and with these three words of Gemara, it will revolutionize our understanding literally of every event that occurred in the Purim story, and we'll see in history as well. So Achashverosh could not sleep at night. Does anybody know? Why couldn't Achashverosh sleep at night? Who was waking him up? The Medr says, Gavriel came, he took Achashverosh's head. He banged his head against the floor 366 times. And by the way, that could be very disturbing. I personally find that if an angel comes and bangs your head against the floor, 
it could be very disturbing during the course of sleep. And uh, Gavriel said, wake up, wake up, maybe there's somebody you need to uh, reward. And all of a sudden, Ahasuerus hears rattling in the courtyard, The king says, who's in the courtyard? The Haman ba, Haman was coming. To tell the king. To hang Mordechai. Al on the tree. You ready for the next three words? Asher heichin lai. That he prepared for him. Literally, that Haman prepared for Mordechai. And the Gemara asks, the word loy is extra. Obviously, Haman prepared the tree for Mordechai. Just say, Al ha'etz on the tree, Asher heichin, that he prepared. Why does it have to say, Asher heichin loy, that he prepared for Mordechai? Says the Gemara, Tana interpreted as follows. Loy heichin, he prepared it for himself. Haman thought he was preparing the gallows for Mordechai. But in, in actuality, Haman was preparing the gallows for himself because it would be Haman that would soon be hanging on these very gallows. Now, at first glance, this is not a major revelation. Everybody knows Haman made the gallows for Mordechai and ultimately Haman was hanging on those very gallows. But actually, this is the major breakthrough in understanding Megillas Esther. We're going to say... In one week from tonight, we're going to add to Shemona Esrei, Bimei Mordechai Esther, And we're going to say that Hashem did two things. Heifarta esatsasai, He foiled the plot of the enemy. Hashem nullified the plot. But then we add, Vikilkalta esmachshavtai, He corrupted the scheme. What does that mean that God corrupted the scheme? We don't give HaKadosh Baruch Hu enough credit for what he's able to do. God says, I'm not worried about the enemy. I don't need to kill the enemy. I don't need to knock off the enemy. You give me the biggest anti-Semite Sinai Yisrael enemy. You give me his plans, his machinations, his scheme. And I will co-opt and hijack his plans and use his plans to bring about salvation to the Jewish people. And this is the most common theme in Jewish history. Let's start. So there's, a, there, there's this adorable baby. He's just delicious. And guess what? His mother threw him in the most dangerous spot on earth. The Nile River. In the Nile River, if a baby gets within... I was once in Phoenix, Arizona, and they had these crocodiles behind a glass and a guy walks in there with a slab of meat 10 feet away from the crocodile he puts the meat down and faster than you could see the meat has disappeared because the crocodile has jumped eaten the meat and gone back to his spot before your eye could even take it in when babies float across the Nile they don't usually make it and the Pharaoh made a decree, Pharaoh made a decree, that he got word through his astrologers that the Jewish Savior is going to be born on a specific day, and therefore all the baby boys need to be thrown into the river. Why did Pharaoh make that decree? Because he wanted, he needed to exterminate the future Savior of the Jewish people. And the Rebbe Shalom is sitting in Shamayim, and the Rebbe Shalom is watching, and he's laughing at Pharaoh. 
He's saying, Paro, you think this decree will, will eradicate the Jewish Savior? Watch this, Pharaoh. This decree is going to groom the Jewish Savior. So there's going to be this uh, daughter of yours, Basia. She's going to be swimming in the Nile. And she's going to notice the child. And the child is going to be crying. And she's going to take the child in. And she's going to bring the child into the palace. And then 2 a.m., she's going to be rocking the child to sleep. And Pharaoh in the other room is going to be, Hey, Basia, what's all that noise in the other room? And Basia, you, you wouldn't believe it, Dad. I, I, I just adopted this really adorable child. And he's really he's just keeping me up at night. Dad, would you mind just rocking the child to sleep? I, I'm, I need to get some sleep tonight. So that night, the Pharaoh is rocking the future Savior of the Jewish people to sleep. And then at 2.30, Pharaoh's like, hey, Basia, the kid's starving. I don't think we have any formula in the house. He's like, Dad, you mind? Go to CVS, get some formula for the kid. So um, Pharaoh said, I don't have any money. No, use your American Express card. So Pharaoh is rocking Moshe to sleep. He's feeding Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu grows up in the palace. Moshe Rabbeinu literally was the stepson of the, of the Pharaoh. The Ibn Ezra writes, Why did God orchestrate that Moshe should grow up in Pharaoh's palace? Why can't he grow up with the rest of the Jewish people? Says Ibn Ezra, if Moshe Rabbeinu would have grown up with the rest of the Jewish people, then he would have grown up with a low morale, with a slave mentality, and he never would have had the persona and the personality to be the leader of the Jewish people. So therefore, God orchestrated that he grow up in the palace, he's groomed for royalty by the king, so Moshe Rabbeinu comes in one day, and maybe his tie isn't straight, and the Pharaoh says, hey, Moses, you're going to be a leader one day. Straighten out your tie. Stand tall. Moshe Rabbeinu was created by Paroi. You know the Mishnah in Perkei Avos? Paroi Kibel Torah Misinai? You ever hear that Mishnah? Not Moshe Kibel Torah. Without Paroi, there wouldn't have been a Moshe Rabbeinu. So we think Paroi thought he was going to, he was going to exterminate the Jewish Savior. Paroi created the Jewish Savior. Paroi groomed Moshe Rabbeinu. I want to give you a few examples from the Megillah where this method of hashkacha is very evident. And then we'll, uh, we'll try to analyze a few historical episodes where this type of hashkacha pratis is uh, extremely uh, noticeable. So Haman has this great decree. On the 13th of Adar, he's going to annihilate the Jewish people. And if you look in the Psukim in the Megillah, the two psukim that discuss and describe the decree of Haman, they seem to contradict each other. If you look in Parak Gimel of the Megillah, Parak Gimel, Pasuk Yer Gimel, the Pasuk says, And what's going to happen on that day? That the Jewish people will be annihilated and exterminated. But then we have another Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Pashegen HaKasav, the script of the text, to give law in every community. That was open and revealed to all the nations. Was just to be ready for that day. What does this mean? The Vilna explains that the decree of Haman had two 
aspects to it. There were the letters that he sent out to the government, to the officials, to the royalty, and those letters said explicitly on the 13th of Adar, the Amalekim, the Persians are going to come and annihilate the Jewish people. However, that decree and that text was not known to the common folk. The regular guy in the street did not know what was going to happen on the 13th of Adar. In other words, the uh, Pashkevilin, the signs that were plastered all over the walls of Persia, all it said was, on the 13th of Adar, be ready, be ready, be prepared, beware of the Ides of March, Leois asidim layoim hazeh. The Vilna Gaon explains that Haman calculated this, uh, this method very precisely. Haman knew that if the Jews ever got wind of what was going to happen to them on the 13th day of Adar, then we would have done what we do best. We would have gone to the uh, government, we would have gone to the mayor, we would have gone to the governor, and we would have bribed them, and we would have got our way out of trouble. So therefore Haman said, I can't let the Jewish people know what's going to happen on the 13th day of Adar. So I'm just going to tell the government about it, and the mayor, and the governor. But the public letters that are going to go out, that the regular people are going to read, all it's going to say is, Be ready for this day. And then when the tables are turned... And Esther tells Achashverosh, Ish tsar You know who's trying to kill my people? This Haman! And Achashverosh said, I didn't realize you were a Jew. And, and Achashverosh walks out of the palace and he tries to cool off and he comes back and Haman took a misstep and he hangs Haman. And at that point in time, what was going to happen to the Jewish people? We were still going to be annihilated. And Esther said, I don't understand. You just hanged Haman. Why are we going to be annihilated? So Achashver says, I'll tell you why. Because I already sealed Haman's decree of what's going to happen on the 13th of day of Adar. So Esther said, no you didn't. Haman's decree never said what was going to happen on the 13th day of Adar. It just said, be ready for the 13th day of Adar. So now let's turn the tables and let's interpret that, that instead of them killing us, we're going to kill them. Achashur said, that's a great idea. That fool Haman, he never wrote in the document what's actually going to take place. All he wrote was, Be ready for that day. So Haman's whole plan backfired on him. You know, Haman thought, why did he make this ridiculous tree? 50 almost tall. I mean, you don't need a tree 50 almost tall to hang somebody. You know how, how tall 50 almost is? According to Chazoynesh, that's like 100 feet tall. You can't even see it so, so high up. Why did he make this eyesore, this monstrosity of a gallows? So the Vilna Gaon explains, because this Achashverosh guy is the most fickle, wishy-washy guy in the world. One day he's a Democrat, the next day he's a Republican, tomorrow he's a Russian, the day after he's Ukrainian. He can't make up his mind. He's constantly back and forth. So we need to basically strike while the iron is hot. I'm going to get him angry at Mordechai. And there's going to be this eyesore of a gallows staring him in the face. And in a moment of rage, he's just going to say, Tolu Olaf, hang him! And that's exactly what happened to Haman. Haman took one little misstep with Esther. 
Achashverosh got angry. If he would have waited a day, he probably would have calmed down. But he's standing there, he's angry at Haman. There's this eyesore of the gallows staring him in the face. Chavroina says, Tulu, I love. So Achashverosh says, Fine, great idea. The next day he said, You know, bad move, why did I do that? But his whole plan backfired on him. And this is my second to favorite example in the Megillah. So Achashverosh has a problem with his wife. Now, back in the day, if you're the king and you have a problem with your wife, then tomorrow there's a new, another chasana. That's usually what happened. Kings had many, many, many wives. And yet, Achashverosh, he has a problem with his wife, so just kill her? No. He has to ask the advice of the chachomim yoidei ha'itim. He has to ask the advice of the assembly, the... Uh, the uh, assemblage of sages. Why is he asking anybody's advice? So the Vilna Gaon says that the Pasuk says, Vayoymer HaMelech L'Chachamim Yoidei Ho'itim Kichin Devar HaMelech L'Chol Yoidei Dasvedin The Gra interprets these words that Achashverosh was legally required to ask the advice of his assembly, of his congress, Kichin Devar HaMelech the law in Persia was that any time a situation affected the king himself, he could not make a unilateral decision, he cannot make an independent decision. Yes, he's a tyrant, he's a dictator, that's when it comes to anybody else. But if it was relevant to him himself, the king had to ask the advice of his assembly. So therefore he asked the Chachomim Yoidei Let's fast forward toward the end of the story. So Haman took a misstep with Esther and all of a sudden Achashverosh is fuming at Haman and he doesn't know what to do. So what does Charvoyna say? Vayoymer Charvoyna Echad min asorisim lefnei hamelech He says Gam hinei ho'etz There's a tree. Why don't you hang Haman? And what does Achashverosh say? Great idea. Tiluhu alav Hang him. I don't understand. What happened to the law in Persia that whenever something affects the king himself, you need to ask the advice of the assembly. So why didn't Ahasuerus convene his congress and say, I don't know what to do with Haman? It's a big question. Ask the Vilna Gain. Says the Vilna Gain, you know why Ahasuerus didn't have to ask anyone else's advice? Because there's this great guy by the name of Memuchan and You know, this law in Persia is insanity. You're the king of the world. You have to ask the advice of your sages of what to do with your wife. From now on, pass the law that you make unilateral decision always. And Achashverosh says, Memuchan, you're my man. Thank you very much. From now on, I will make decisions all by myself. I'm not going to ask anyone else's advice. And who's Memuchan? Haman. So who passed the law in Persia? That Achashverosh, when he's angry at Haman, he could kill Haman. Haman. So Haman set his own table. Haman 
prepared the way for his own demise. He built the gallows to hang himself. He passed the law to destroy himself. That is the main theme of Megillah Esther. Where HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you give me the biggest Russia, you give me the biggest dictator, you give me the biggest tyrant, you give me his diabolical plans, and I will use them to bring about salvation for the Jewish people. Why does HaKadosh Baruch Hu operate that way? Why does Hashem manipulate events with such precision that Hashem says, you know what, instead of knocking off the Russia, I'll use the Russia for my own purposes. So the students of the Vilna Gaon explain, because in the Golas today, there ain't no open miracles. We cannot expect HaKadosh Baruch Hu to split the sea for us. We cannot expect HaKadosh Baruch Hu to make open miracles for us. We live in an era of Hester Panim. So then how do we know HaKadosh Baruch Hu is there? What manner can HaKadosh Baruch Hu show us that it's Him pulling the strings, that it's absolutely clear that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is behind everything? HaKadosh Baruch Hu's clearest manifestation of His presence is what we call Al Ha'etz Asher Loi Heichen, where HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes the enemy and he takes his plan and he co-ops it and he hijacks it and he uses it to bring salvation to the Jewish people. So let's fast forward to the very end of Megillah Sesta. Achashverosh taxing the people. So I was learning Sefer Ezra. And in Sefer Ezra we read about how after the 70 years of Golis Bavel, the Jewish people want to return back to Eretz Yisrael and rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. And the problem was we had no money. We couldn't afford it. And the Psukim tell us in Ezra, Parag Zion, that the Jewish people turned to the king of Persia. Anybody know who was the king of Persia? Daryavesh. Very good. Darius. And they say, Darius, we would love to build the temple we don't have any money. So he said, why don't you make a charity campaign, have a Chinese auction. They said, that hasn't been invented yet. We have no options. So Darius said, no problem. And the Pasuk says, Darius opened up the treasury of taxes and he funded the building of the second Besamikdash. And I ask you one simple question. Where did Darius get all this tax money from? to build the second Beis HaMikdash. And the answer is, Vayosem HaMelech HaChashveroish Mas Al HaOretz Hayam That's why the Megillah ends, that HaChashveroish taxed the people. Because now the Purim story has come full circle. The story began, HaChashveroish was having a party and he was celebrating that the 70 years were up and the Beis HaMikdash would never be rebuilt. And by the end of the Purim story, Achashverosh is fundraising to build the second Beis HaMikdash. But look at the irony. The story begins, Achashverosh is having a party. He's having the biggest party in history. And what's he celebrating? He's celebrating what he thought was the eternal destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. And the Yvonne laughing at him. He says, you think this party is celebrating the eternal destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. <laughs> Watch this, Achaz You're going to ask Vashti to display herself. She's going to refuse. You're going to kill her. 
Esther will become the new queen. You're going to marry her. You're going to have a kid, Darius. You're going to raise the taxes. You're going to collect the taxes. You're going to die. He's going to get all the money. And he's going to build the second base Hamikdash. You think this party is celebrating Chorban? This is the party to enjoy and celebrate the future building of the second base Hamikdash. So you know, if you went to the second base Hamikdash, there should be a big plaque. It says, this temple was proudly dedicated by Achashverosh in collecting the tax money from all over the world. So we hear about this, and now our eyes are opened a little bit to another level of recognition of the hand of Hashem in history. But right now, this is relegated to Megillah Esther, and I just want to bring to your attention two incredible illustrations of how HaKadosh Baruch Hu continues to work this way throughout history and in our own time. You ever hear of Lakewood Yeshiva? No? I don't think so. You know who built Lakewood Yeshiva? Yeah, Rabbi Cohen, no. King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. You know about this story? In 1492, August 2nd, on a Thursday, was the Spanish Inquisition. And King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, for many, many years, were dedicating their lives to their so-called imposter god, they were on a mission what is called Reconquesta to conquer the entire Iberian uh, Peninsula. And finally on August 2nd, Tishbav, 1492, they rid the entire Iberian Peninsula of any Muslim influence and every Jew was expelled from Spain, 300,000 Jews in 1492. Because they said there will never be a homeland for the Jewish people. The Jewish people will not find solace and comfort anywhere in the world. They're not welcome anywhere. And this went into force August 2nd, 1492. But we actually have a record from a cabin boy in the archives of Seville who was heading out on a boat on that fateful Tisha B'Av, 1492. And as he's coming out of the port, he passes by three ships, three massive ships, fully loaded, fully financed by Ferdinand and Isabella. And this boy writes, he passed by Christopher Columbus and the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, that they were docked on that Tishabov and they were going to set sail the next day, Friday, August 3rd, 1492, to discover the new world. Because Rebun Shem is laughing, Ferdinand, Isabella, you think you're going to destroy the greatest haven that the Jewish people ever enjoyed? No, 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 no. You're going to pay somebody to discover a place where we could build the Lakewood Yeshiva and the Mir Yeshiva and we could build the greatest haven the Jewish people ever enjoyed in our history. You think you're destroying Jewish homeland? You think you're destroying a haven for the Jewish people? You're paying to discover a much greater one. Isn't it incredible that the ones who expelled us were the ones who discovered the country that we've been able to enjoy peace and protection for over 200 years. But let's bring it a little bit closer to our own times. This is something that... I've given this before. I've spoken about this before. I love this idea, Miguel Sester. Friday night, I was flipping through a few books and Hashem gave me a, a, a matana. In the last 200 years, who do you think 
has been the greatest enemy of the Jewish people. Which country? Germany. Most people would say Germany. Because Germany, after all, they invented not only... Not only did they kill Jews, they invented systematic extermination of the Jewish people. That's what many people think. But they really didn't, were not the ones to invent systematic extermination of Jewish people. You know who invented that? The Russians. The Russians had a plan in the 19th century to murder millions and millions of Jews in a three-step process. They would kill a third of the Russian Jews they would convert a third and they would expel a third. That's why by 1920... I take that I have another half hour after that. Yeah, okay. So, I'm almost done. So, the Russians uh, had expelled... uh, Over 2 million Jews had already left Russia in 1920. They came to America. They came all over the world. And they, the Russians, were the ones who invented systematic extermination, but they just weren't good at it. You know, the the Russians, it takes them a long time to get something done. In Russia, if you want a new car, you put down $30,000, and they tell you, okay, on March 13th, 2032, the car will come. You get it about 10 years later. You know, the story goes, the guy paid money for the car. They said, okay, the car's coming in 10 years. So the person said, really, in 10 years? Morning or afternoon? So he said, Who, what did it? It's 10 years from now. What difference is it? He said, I can't. In the morning, the plumber's coming. No? That's how things work, work in Russia. So, all right, now we're getting going. Okay, so... So in Russia, they invented systematic extermination. The Germans copied it, and they perfected it, and they were much better at it. In the last 50 to 60 years... Who has sponsored nearly all the Arab aggression against the Jewish people? The Russians. In 1953, Stalin said, you know, the Holocaust didn't do a good job. He's going to eradicate between 2 and 4 million Jews in Russia. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So it's interesting. The Russians have been, for the last 200 years, perhaps our greatest enemy. And in 1948, when we're fighting for our homeland fighting for some haven that the Jewish people could build Torah to come back to Eretz Yisrael, come back to Mekayim HaKadoshim. We were losing the war in 1948 because we had no ammunition. And then Stalin, Yamach Shemay V'Zichroi, who made Hitler look like a good guy, he killed more than 20 million people. Stalin got on in his head that the state of Israel, which is going to be socialist, will probably be communist. And he doesn't like the Brits in the Middle East, so let's get the Britain out of the Middle East. And Stalin funded the war of independence, and if not for him, we would have lost the war. So who allowed us to return to Eretz Yisrael? The biggest Russia in the last 200 years. But then in 1953, Stalin realized they may, they may be socialists, they, they're not going to be communists. So he decided he's going to exterminate between 2 and 4 million Jews in Russia, and here's the plan. plan is, he's going to create trumped-up charges against seven doctors for some kind of malpractice, he's going to try them, he's going to convict them, and then he's going to ship all the Jews in Russia to the deep areas of Siberia, where it's between negative 75 and negative 95 degrees below freezing, 
and they would all die within days and weeks. And the doctors were already on trial. And the trial was set, I believe, for March 5th, 1953. It was February 28th, 1953. Rabbi Zilber, if you read his biography, he was in a forced labor camp. And it was Shabbos, and that night was going to be Purim, and he's trying to strengthen his fellow workers. He says, you know, God saved us 2,500 years ago, and here's the story of the Megillah and the story of Purim. And one guy just lost it. He said, Rabbi, what are you telling me? Nonsense that God saved us 2,500 years ago. But Stalin today, he's strong like an ox. He built the railroad system. He built the concentration camps. And in a few weeks, he's going to do what Hitler didn't do yet. And Rabbi Yitzhak Zilber said, Stalin, he's only Basar Vadam, he's only flesh and blood. No human being knows what could happen to them in a half hour. Rabbi Yitzhak Zilber said this, the night of Purim, before Megillah Sester, 7.50 p.m. Later that night, they heard on the radio that at 8.23, 33 minutes later, this ox, Stalin, Stroked out, Leil Purim, 1953. Rabbi Zuber said that, you know, I didn't have a Tehillim on me, but all of a sudden I thought if, he's in a, if he had a stroke, I'm going to daven that he should die. And somehow out of the deep recesses of his heart, he recited the entire Tehillim by heart three times. He said, if I know Tehillim by heart today, it's thanks to Joseph Stalin. And the day before the trial, Stalin died. And at his Levaya, many of the Rishom in the world were invited, including the president of Czechoslovakia, who had just also killed many Jews in the Czech Republic. And at Stalin's Levaya, he also dropped dead. <laughs> and it all started on Purim, 1953. Think about how Kaddish Baruch Hu pulls the strings. You know, we live, we walk, we learn, and we're in such darkness. But the light of Hashem's Hashgacha is so incontrovertible, is so obvious, is so powerful, is so penetrating. And that's what we're mispalel, Megillas Esther Hashem, through this document, please open up for us the concealment of the Golas, the, the cloud of the Golas, you know, we, we hear the news and we think, where's HaKadosh Baruch Hu? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is pulling every string. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, you think I need your guy in the White House and your guy at the helm in Israel? You give me the biggest enemy in every department and in every capacity and in every venue and in every office. Give me more credit than needing a friend of the Jewish people to bring salvation for Kal Yisrael. So as we learn, the great bear, Russia, went down in 1953 on Purim. And there's more to say about this. But let me just leave you with the message that if you see Achashverosh taxing the people, and you see the economy in flux, and you see challenges for the Jewish people, we believe that every small world happening is for us, it's to bring us to salvation, and Be'ezus Hashem, just like in the time of the Megillah, we're all Mespalel, La Yehudim, Haisa Oira, V'Simcha, V'Sasa, and Bikar,
Kane T. Helena. Thank you so much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.